Nathan, how, how's life? Are, are things crazy? Yeah, a little bit. We've got a lot of tournaments coming up and projects to finish and everything. I know I know a lot of your fellow 11th graders have looked very stressed and tired. Yeah, I mean, we have that literature honors project for your class. The chemistry lab just got finished, and we have, what, two debate tournaments coming up now? We have Duke and, um, and yeah, Coolidge. Yeah, the first Coolidge one is, uh, I think it's about two and a half weeks from today. We're recording uh, on August 22nd, so yep. September 7th is coming up fast, and then we got October 5th, and then we'll really pick up speed. I think we have three tournaments in November, so it's going oh, yeah. to get pretty three crazy. Three in November? Three in November wow. is a lot. So, That's a lot. Yeah. It is. Well, today we're going to be on a public forum, so it'll be it'll be good times. All right, cool. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a debate coach and humanities instructor at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. I'm joined today by my co-host, Ethan Delves. Hello, everyone. My name is Ethan Delves. I'm a student at Thales Academy of Josh's, and on this podcast, we go over different resolutions in high school debate and try to provide a good analysis for you to hear. We're a little bit late on this one. The, uh, the public forum resolution's been out for a while, so uh, to at least make up for some of our tardiness and not having this out a week and a half ago when the resolution came out, uh, we're going to try to go through a pretty decent amount of material, because I'm sure uh, plenty of folks have already been researching this. But let's not skip the basics. Ethan, what's the resolution? The resolution is the European Union should join the Belt and Road Initiative. Okay, now let's do some basics. What's, what's our subject, what's our verb, and we'll go from there. European Union is the actor. And should join is our verb phrase, and the Belt and Road Initiative is the object of yep. the resolution. Now, I do think it's worth noting, as I was digging into this a little bit today, I know there are two European countries that have already uh, put out memos of understanding or, or have even taken out some of the money from the Belt and Road Initiative. You've got Portugal and you've got Italy that have both received BRI money and begun projects. But I think it's significant that it is the European Union. It's not any particular countries. We're not talking about France should join it, or England should join it, or Poland should join it. Instead, we're talking about the entirety of the European Union. Does that seem significant? That is really significant, because then that has more of an impact on the rest of the world than it would if it was just one country or two countries. So it's a, it's a very macro and global impact. Yeah, I saw, I saw one. Uh, so apparently last year uh, was when Portugal issued a, an MOU or a Memo of Understanding as the beginning of joining the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and then they're one of the poorer countries in Europe. So the idea of uh, cheap money from a, Chinese, from a Chinese bank was very attractive to Portugal. But once they said yes, uh, the, the, the um, Chinese Morning Post, uh, I'm sorry, the, the South China Daily reported that one of the officials from Brussels really counted this as a diplomatic loss for the European Union. Because seeing one country go there kind of makes it more likely that others will, and that really seems to be against the interest of the EU. So Portugal's one of the poorer countries of the EU, so they're more. you would expect that that makes them more susceptible to accept this kind of deal quicker than the other countries? I, I think so. I don't, I don't really see Germany going down this road. They're, they're going to be very skeptical of, of what kind of strings are attached to these funds. And didn't you say that Portugal, like you looked up this study or something, that it said Portugal was the least stressed country out of all the ones in the European Union, and could that have something to do with the fact that they have decriminalized all illicit drugs. <laughs> I wondered if that's where we were going. I, 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 that's, that's exactly where we're going. That's probably true. Uh, they, they came up when we were researching the drugs case for LD last year. Uh, yeah, that was that was one of the big cases for that one, I remember. Yeah, yeah. That, that was cool. Well, okay, so we've already talked about join a little bit, or should join. We're, we're talking about, in this case, taking money for financing.
financing that comes through the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and that's going to mean that that deal is conducted between, that's funds coming from a Chinese bank that's going to be used to hire a probably Chinese company that would accept Chinese funds and Chinese currency uh, to build an infrastructure project. Well, so let's get a little bit more into the Belt and Road Initiative. Go ahead, Ethan, what can you tell us about the Belt and Road Initiative? So this project was unveiled in 2013. When President Xi Jinping envisioned like an impressive set of economic and strategic benefits that would flow from hard and soft networks linking to China and the rest of Asia, Africa, and Europe, and I'm not just saying that. That's from a CQ researcher, so mm-hmm. I'm not. Just, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna give credit where it's due. That's it. That's Additionally, it. the Chinese finance infrastructure projects would strengthen trade and financial integration with BRI countries, he said, and facilitate greater policy coordination with their governments. And the soft components of the initiative, such as student scholarships and a new Chinese international finance payment system, would advance Chinese models for business and governance. So we're talking then about a specific plan to take billions and billions of dollars worth of Chinese funds and essentially offer it to countries all around the world if they need for building infrastructure projects that are going to then uh, allow them to create new infrastructure in their countries. It just looks like a massive takeover. I mean, China everywhere, like spreading all of its infrastructure and its projects. And not only are they doing that, but they're giving the countries the money to do it. So it makes it all the more appealing because they have to pay it back, but they get the money up front. Well, you yes. start I mean, projects but immediately. It's, but this is essentially, we're dealing with, this is going to be all about kind of uh, what the term here is sovereign debt, where you have one country that's lending money, not to an individual or to a company, but rather it's a country lending money to a country. So the sovereign debt is going to be worked out in different contractual arrangements. You're going to have different levels of different levels of interest that's required, different kinds of collateral. And one of the big problems that uh, one group found that was studying this, uh, this is from uh, the Center for Global Development. Uh, they wrote a paper on this and published it in March of 2018. It's entitled "Examining the Debt Implications of the Belt and Road Initiative from a Policy Perspective." with authors there being John Hurley, Scott Morris, and Galen Portlance. One of the big problems they found with this is a total lack of transparency in these arrangements. So it's not the case that the international community can in any way oversee or even witness these arrangements. These are all kind of set as deals between each country and these different Chinese banks. Which makes it even more problematic for the entire EU to accept this kind of thing, because if you can't be transparent and clear about it, maybe it'll work on a individual level, but once you get to the entire EU, there's a lot of problems you can right. encounter with that. But the, the size of the Belt and Road Initiative is also really interesting. The uh, Council on Foreign Relations has a backgrounder article on this entitled, China's Massive Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, they explain uh, that uh, as of 2018, more than 60 countries have signed on to projects through the Belt and Road Initiative. And uh, currently, China has spent an estimated $200 billion on such efforts. Morgan Stanley has predicted that China's overall expenses over the life of the BRI could reach $1.2 to $1.3 trillion by 2027, though estimates on total investments vary, and close that quote. This is a massive project where literally China is intending to create a global trade infrastructure where because Chinese funds are the mechanism to enable all of this infrastructure and Chinese companies are the ones that will be doing all of the construction, ultimately this is going to try to shift the focus of global trade uh, ultimately to Beijing. So where the old line was uh, all roads lead to Rome, 
the Belt and Road <laughs> Initiative is all about shifting that to this one road. All roads lead to Beijing. That's it. I oh think that's gosh. the ultimate goal. And let's keep in mind that the end goal for this is 2049. So with the speculation that we're already reaching 1.2 to $1.3 trillion by 2027, you know, like halfway-ish mm-hmm. mark, maybe a little bit less or more, that's in, that's incredible that we're going to be reaching that amount of money in the Belt and Road Initiative before it's even complete. So imagine when it is complete or the EU decided to sign on. What do you think it would take for those countries that are a little bit wealthier to sign on to something like this? What kind of benefits do you think China would need to propose to those countries to get them to sign something? Well, I, I think they would need to, and part of that is currently looking at where the EU is today, where they have, uh, really, they, the EU is not doing great in 20, 2019. doesn't look like it'll be doing that much better in 2020. For the EU to grow, they need access to more markets. And the Belt and Road Initiative would mean that the EU has access to those markets where they can be trading European for Chinese goods and back and forth. They could extend their uh, their trade networks into Asian markets where currently they're not, they, they don't exist. So I think the biggest draw for the EU here is economic growth. Because now they're, especially in a time where they're lacking in economic growth and going on a, down, a downhill, the Belt and Road Initiative might be a thing to save them. Mm-hmm. I, I think so. So what a, I mean, what a great time to propose this resolution as well, because at the state of the EU currently, you see that there's a little bit more on the affirmative side for joining the Belt and Road Initiative, because now they have a reason to really need it. I, I think there is, and let's so uh, let, let's shift gears a little bit, and let's let's think about the EU for just a little bit. Um, so the, at, at a very basic level, the, the EU is a community of European nations that are bound together by treaty for economic benefit. There's a lot of benefits that come with the EU. It's grown over, it had its beginnings uh, from the beginning of 1950. Uh, It started with six countries that banded together to have easy trade for coal. Hmm. It's grown from then to now. It's got 28 countries. And now the majority of those countries have free trade across their borders. They have a common currency. And for countries that have joined the Schengen Agreement, they have free travel throughout their countries. You don't need to have a passport check going from France to Germany. If you're in the EU, you get to travel back and forth. Uh, so there's there's a lot of benefits to being in the EU. How many have joined the Schengen Agreement? Do you know? I, I don't have that head? number in front of me. It's okay. it's I believe it's more than twenty are in that in that agreement. So that's so pretty it's, significant. It's a significant number of them. So the EU as uh, one of the big questions I would have if uh, I was on uh, if I was researching this, would be trying to figure out does joining the Belt and Road Initiative involve extending Schengen Agreement status? to other countries. Probably not, but that's something I would want to research. Here's another question is, if the NEG is arguing against the Belt and Road Initiative and for the entire EU to join the Belt and Road Initiative, then what is the affirmative going to say when part of the EU is already divided and we see that division sort of increasing over time? We already have, you said, two countries that have put out, what is it called? The something? Oh, the MOU. The MOU, Memo of Understanding. The MOU. So we see at least interest in the Belt and Road Initiative. So perhaps a common argument that people will see, maybe not even common, but a common idea that would flow around this debate is if we don't have the entire EU signing on, what happens when individual countries start to sign on? What kind of conflict would you see with the rest of the EU that hasn't decided to join the Belt and Road Initiative? That'd be be really interesting, also in part because the EU is this continual hybrid thing that Uh, On the one hand, it's an attempt to create a truly European community where they're appealing to a common European heritage, European values, 
but at the same time, that that European community is always framed in terms of being very respectful to individual national autonomy. So it's not joining the EU doesn't require surrendering a country's right to rule itself or even traditions. You see this even in the currency, the uh, the euro, where the euro is printed in each country with a with the the heroes and the heroines of each country on their currency. So the EU, the euro looks different based on whether you're in France or Germany or Italy and so on. Uh, but how that would work would be really interesting. Uh, one of the things that I think one thing we do need to keep in mind with the EU is that they do have uh, joining the Belt and Road Initiative is going to be it's going to be tricky for the EU because China is the force behind the EU and China has a huge huge problem with human rights. And that's going to take us to kind of our first big document. Ethan, what's the document we need to look at? The Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union. This document was uh, promulgated in the year 2000. It still is the defining document for the European Union. Uh, we're reading from the copy that is published in the official journal of the European Union. I got this from uh, Europa.eu earlier this morning. Uh, and we're just going to run through a few of the uh, charter or a few of the articles in here uh, that really establish some of the fundamental value statement, value principles of the EU. And for the public forum folks listening to this, please don't run away when you hear the word value. Let me briefly make my pitch, and Ethan, jump in if you want to in a second, for why I think we need this. Um, so one, I think one of the biggest arguments that the con side can take on this resolution is that joining, the e, joining in the Belt and Road Initiative literally contradicts some of the defining principles that bind the EU together. So that by joining in, this, joining in the Belt and Road Initiative, the EU is going to be surrendering a critical stance of leadership in the world and surrendering that to China. So we want to see that in terms of the, the way the EU defines itself through this charter on human rights. And here's another question is the most important thing to have there for that argument is a link, of course, because if you're joining the Belt and Road Initiative, it's an economic initiative and agreement. So how does human rights tie into joining an economy and to what degree would you join in with the Chinese economy? And what historical examples can we see maybe of when you make an agreement of this sort, how it affects the people and how it affects human rights and and government and things of that nature and how it really filters down because on a really superficial level you could just look at the economy but this argument could easily fall if you can't make the link between human rights and economic partnership right and i think that's that that's really critical uh, now i think I'd, i'm not so sure i'd be looking for historical examples there because i don't know that anything like the belt and road initiative has ever existed before yeah. nobody's ever said hey we have so much money that we will lend out between one and two trillion dollars to developing nations and help them build stuff in exchange for fill in the blank. That that's a relatively recent development. But as far as the tie there, I think that's a critical link. So where to would you establish. look to? Um, I would really look at the fact that how we spend our money indicates our values, and that really how our politics are governed have everything to do with what we believe human beings are. And I'd look at the. Uh, I'd, I'd honestly look to. Uh, I'd look to some of the Cold War era moments. No uh, historical examples. Well, I, I guess that's a I, that's fair. But I, I'd really look back at the Cold War as really a place where I think this is ultimately going. Because the Cold War is a struggle that is expressed economically, but it's foundationally a difference in philosophy. Where the Communist Party of Russia and the USSR maintains that you can actually control an economy and you can define the exact goals and you can, you can control the, the course of human evolution. 
where and the free world is defined literally by that verb for, or that description free and it's all about freedom and individual autonomy and letting people be free within certain bounds and ultimately that difference in philosophy manifests itself into very different goals politically and economically so joining in the politics joining in the economics of it is looking at the fact that there uh, really one of the big principles i think is at stake here is the statement uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch in oh, which yeah, case, yeah. if China is offering very cheap or free money, well, the question we need to have in mind is what is China's goal in this? They're not just lending out money because they want to see developing nations in Africa have railways and airports and seaports. Now, what does China stand to gain? And if China indeed does stand to gain those the mineral rights of Central African nations in the mining belt or ports like they did in Sri Lanka when Sri Lanka fell behind in their loan payments and now China said, oh, it's okay, we'll forgive your debt. By the way, we now own that port and we're going <laughs> to lease it and control it for you for 99 years and you have no recourse but to accept this deal. Oh, man. Well, what this ultimately leads to is China taking over some of the places that they're lending to if they are, in fact, doing the kind of predatory lending that the Center for Global Development says that they're doing. So maybe this is an incentive for the wealthier nations or, or countries to join the Belt and Road Initiative is because they can actually pay the debt so they wouldn't have this danger in front of them. And maybe if the EU did it all together, those wealthier ones could help support the not so Possibly, except that that then gets back to the question of motive. By joining the Belt and Road Initiative, is the European Union endorsing a Chinese initiative that at its heart is really about... Is the EU really joining in this motive that, or this, this movement that's all about China becoming a global leader and replacing the West as really the leadership of the world? Do you think anybody would argue that China should be the global leader? Oh, I think they should. They could. And if so, that's why we need to pay attention to these human rights. So you if think someone will run the case that it, we need to help China become the global leader? I think someone might run that case. I, I can see it. Out yeah. of really out of saying, well, the West has been this hegemonic colonial power and therefore it's time for China to be the ruler. In which case, it matters that we in that shift we move from a global leader like the EU that is in the tradition of the West and in the tradition of strong strong human rights. It matters if we have a new global power that is leading the world and that is the major economic power. And obviously, China is making a play to be that economic power. Whoever controls the purse controls what happens in the world. Right. So if that happens and China does not have any strong views on human rights, that's a problem. They ha there are a lot of interesting views on human rights in this document as well. I was reading through some of them. And I also did not know that the EU did not have the death penalty. So yeah. I learned something new today. That was really cool. There it is. There's one really, there's one really important one I wanted to mention first. We could get into go, that now. Go for is it. That it's which, in Article, Article 3. Article 3. Yep, right at the beginning. It's the first point. It says, everyone has the right to respect for his or her physical and mental integrity. And with all those stories we hear about re-education in China, the mental integrity is really resonating with me. Because if you – defining mental integrity first because it's kind of a vague term. But after that's defined in the debate, if someone chooses to make this argument, you could make the argument that China does not respect mental integrity because of examples X, Y, and Z. So you right. want to join the Belt and Road Initiative. So as far as methodology goes for this, I'm going to read a little bit from the preamble, and then I think we should just run through a few of these articles together. All right, I'm ready. And I think the, the basic method here that we're suggesting is that Khan really could use the, uh, the Charter of Human Rights, of Fundamental Rights of the European Union, to establish a strong argument that 
the Chinese government does not does not align with the fundamental rights endorsed by the European Union. That's not the sole argument. That's not going to be enough to help you win the case. I think you also need to have some of the economic stuff we'll get into in a moment, but I think you could easily make that case. Well, here's where the EU starts uh, this document. Uh, they say in the second paragraph of the preamble, the union is founded on the indivisible universal values of human dignity, freedom, equality, and solidarity. It is based on the principles of democracy and the rule of law. It places the individual at the heart of its activities by establishing the citizenship of the union and by creating an area of freedom, security, and justice. I think there's two things that matter there. The first is that there are all of these values that the EU is establishing as central to its identity. This is what the union is founded on by their own statement. Secondly, it's worth noting the EU is not saying that other countries have to be that, other regions have to be that, but it is saying that those are what it is all about. So if the EU is going to partner with the Chinese government and help the Chinese through borrowing their money and repaying at their interest rates, that would assist the Chinese government and through more funds eventually uh, in really opposing these central ideas of the EU. Uh, okay, so... I was going to look at, let's take a look at, I, I thought of the same thing you did, Ethan, on Article 4. Article, I was on 3 before, but 4 as yeah. well. Yeah, 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 I got you. So, okay. Article 4, Prohibition of Torture and Inhuman or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. Mm. What's, the, what's the actual article say? It's the, the title of the article says, oh wait, no, yeah, it that's says, what I just read. no one shall be subjected to torture or to inhumane or degrading treatment or punishment. So, that's already out. I mean, yep, like, that's, that's done. But that here's the thing, work. the link is bothering me. Like, how are we going to link that to the economy? Oh, well, because the Chinese economy has all kinds of, uh, it, it's, oh, I don't know. I don't know how I would link that one. Let's either. just go through these and then yeah, debate more, about the link. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, so Article 5 is a key piece of the, uh, now there's a strong economic link in Article 5, uh, uh, Section 3. Okay. Trafficking in human beings is prohibited. China is one of the largest players in human trafficking. They have a, they currently have a huge uh, shortage of women in China. So there's a massive trade in kidnapping girls from Thailand. Is that the government doing that though? Oh, well, it's in China, it's really hard to draw that line okay. because it's a, such a tight communist, communist rule. So the government and what people are doing is, is blurry in China. But the Chinese government turns a blind eye. They are not trying to stop the trade in human sexual uh, stuff. Because there's not a lot of girls in China? Is what, is yeah, because the they had here? this whole, they had this uh, one-child policy. Yep. I was asking, is that still, is the two-child in place? Or is there uh, they, they, yeah, they lifted that because yeah. they literally, um, China has this cultural practice of preferring boys to girls. Right. So a lot of the families, one of the unintended consequences of the one-child policy was that Families would have a child, it's a girl, they're going to kill that girl, and then hope for a boy. So you have a cultural shortage of girls, which is problematic when you have with uh, plenty of normal sexual desires for women, and so you traffic those in, and those are th those that are sourced to Chinese brothels nationwide. It's an enormous problem. So, which, of course, violates Article 5.3. Right. Uh, okay, then you've got Article 7. Uh, could you read Article 7 for sure. us? It's respect for private and family life. Article says, everyone has the right to respect for his or her private and family life, home, and communications. So, I mean, I, and, and the next one even hammers on that, too. Protection of personal data, forget yep. about it. I, you, you don't have that in China. You nope. don't have respect for a person or for privacy. Literally, what was it, like 100 million cameras or something set up, and then they track you for the social credit system, and then yep. you're the number in the system and you get points docked and you can't ride the bus or buy tickets it's the right. 
Uh, Article 10 caught my eye as well as being really literally opposed to the heart of what China is currently doing. It reads, uh, freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. Everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right includes freedom to change religion or belief and freedom either alone or in community with others, and in public or in private, to manifest religion or belief in worship, teaching, practice, and observance. Mm. The Chinese state has literally uh, attempted over the last year, uh, really over the last eight years, I think it started in 2011, whenever Jinping declared his process of Sinocization, they're going to try to wipe out any uh, non-indigenous to China religions, that includes everything Western, Islam, Judaism, Christianity. It also functionally includes all actual Chinese religions because the Chinese Communist Party is atheist by official statement. And so they're trying to wipe out everything. Uh, you do not have freedom of religion in China. They have a state church that is closely monitored, uh, but you do not have freedom to actually practice whatever faith you happen to hold. And let's not forget about Article 9 either. It says right to marry and right to found a family. Well, they did lift the one-child policy. Mm. That's a big, relatively recent historical example that shows that you didn't even have that because they right. were, you'd only have one child, and that's a huge restriction on a family because, I mean, just look at the West. It's completely different. And look at the EU. Joy, I mean... How would you even join two cultures like that? You know I, I mean? right, and, and especially twenty eight different cultures, like different countries. Like you have to remember, right? it's the EU. It's a union of twenty eight different things joining this one massive power. And so, to go back to that link question you were asking about, if China is actually using the uh, their lending of money to gain a foothold in countries that are develop- developing countries throughout the world, or even in developed countries. Then that then I would expect this to be a move to eventually be able to advance their policies in places of the world they currently don't have any social pressure, but they could over time. Let me ask you a question: Are the people in China happy with their government? Um, I would suspect the answer to that is no. I don't have any evidence for you on that, but I suspect the answer is no. And they won't do anything. Well, I mean, Beijing. I mean, Right, like right. we got into this a while ago, and this is going to be a tangent, but it might be a relevant tangent. Let's do let's, make it a short relevant. Tangent. Let's let's do that. So, I mean, part of the difficulty there. I mean, I, so, I assume you're asking, why don't the people just overthrow their government and establish a better one? I mean, or do something. You know, like if there's so many people, what is it like around two billion? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. If people in China. When you have a, this is one. Of, I mean, this is part of the uh, the evil genius of communism uh, that. And this is part of what Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communist Party was so good at. They, in 1949, when Mao took over, one of the first things he did is called the, uh, the Cultural Revolution, where they literally wiped out all of the ancient roots of Chinese identity. Taoism, um, Confucianism, uh, respect for tradition in the past. There was an intentional effort to destroy all of that within China. Well, what you get... Jump forward by almost seventy years now since that since that movement. What you get are people who are uh, quite, I, I suspect, very unhappy. But you have such a tight communist governmental control over c- the cultural life of China uh, that really uh, you have people who are unhappy. But the Chinese government has cracked one important thing: they let people have an awful lot of freedom in things that are materialistic. But what they don't let people have is freedom of things that would feed the soul or feed the life of the mind. But, and remember, it's not even freedom in materialistic things because those people are the ones paying for it, and then they get to use well, it. Well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, like, I mean, so the, the government doesn't care if you like order if you buy a Coke. 
Like they they're fine with that. It's not wow. like the USSR was that would really uh, forbid that really just had a tight really so tight such tight control of the economy that people are living in poverty. You can be quite wealthy and live in China today. That's possible. But what the government's very tight on is controlling mm-hmm. anything that might lead you to question the teachings of Mao Zedong or the te- or the current the fact that the Chinese Communist Party is the best way to govern the country. They're very good at controlling the flow of that kind of information. So the kinds of things that you're learning in a classical school that would say the human soul matters and your freedom matters and your expression of yourself matters, those would be and those are those are those would be oppressed in China wholesale. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for us to kind of really reckon with because where I think the Chinese government has been ingenious is letting people have cartoons and chotskis and nothings and they can have cars. That's fine, but poetry. Poetry that will encourage you to uh, question your government's teachings? No, can't have that. It's just, it's so interesting how this Belt and Road Initiative, if China really does have these underlying motives, which I'm sure it does, that it's not a massive just world takeover by means of the economy. It's a slow process of putting out this, it's a progressive thing where people are just like, okay, this country's got it, this country's got it. It's like, it's slow but it seems to be working which is i mean which is part of uh i was talking with tyler bond about this on our episode we talked about this it is part of the chinese genius to think of things not in terms of a four to eight year cycle which is how we americans tend to think to speak very very broadly okay the chinese government the chinese are thinking generationally we americans don't think generationally i live in a house that i actively assume i will probably sell my house within the next five to ten years and move to a different house That's not how the Chinese government is thinking. They're thinking, oh, sure, we'll lend you a million dollars worth of uh, renminbi, and in 20 years you might have a famine, in which case you'll be in trouble with making your payments. Well, maybe 30 years later we're going to get that money back, and instead we'll actually control all of the cobalt or all of the copper in your country. And that's going to benefit our 200-year-long plan. Wow. They're thinking wow, that on a was totally the, different level. You just had a terrible voice crack. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Oh, man. Excellent. Well, on, on that note, let's get back from our short digression. Well, let's, let's take a look at it. Article 17. Okay. Uh, so, the right to property. The EU does, in fact, affirm the right to property. Uh, they say in uh, Section 1, everyone has the right to own, use, dispose of, and bequeath his or her lawfully acquired possessions. Also, take note of number two, intellectual property shall be protected. Oh, well, that's really modern and not protected in the Chinese government. Right? That, I mean, I if mean, anything, they're stealing intellectual property. From, right. But again, that's like a very shaky area. It's like it's, a gray area, but right, it's but a huge debate. Still, uh, which again has plenty of economic impact. Can we talk about 11, freedom of expression and information? Oh, did I skip 11? I'll read that I, really yes, quick. Yes, please do. It says, the first part page. says, everyone has the right to freedom of expression. This right shall include freedom to hold opinions and to receive and impart information and ideas without interference by public authority and regardless of frontiers. And the second is freedom, the freedom and pluralism of the media shall be respected. So we see like two big red X's right there. Definitely. Those are big problems for the Chinese government. Uh, okay, let's take a look at Article 21, uh, Section 1. Any discrimination based on any grounds, such as sex, race, color, ethnic, or social origin, genetic features, language, religion, or belief, political or any other opinion, membership of a national minority, property, birth, disability, age, or sexual orientation shall be prohibited. 
the religion, belief, and membership of national minority both stuck out to me. Uh, with the at the very least, current yeah. governmental Chinese attempt to wipe out the Hui people by way of concentration camps—that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Fits also under Article Twenty Two: the Union shall respect cultural, religious, linguistic diversity. The, uh, that is not a protected thing in China. Look at thirty-one. Did you did you circle that one? I did circle thirty-one. Yep, what does thirty-one I, say? Fair and just working conditions. It what? says. You Every, mean I can't? You mean I should not like be injured on the workforce? Work no, nope, in the workplace. No, nope. it oh. says every worker has the right to working conditions which respect his or her health, safety, and dignity. Every worker has the right to limitation of maximum working hours, to daily and weekly rest periods, and to an annual period of paid leave. You know, I was reading last week about uh, there was one company uh, in China that turns out they were uh, there were high school students who were uh, working an internship. I know our podcast listeners can't see my scare quotes, but this internship was uh, for a was a requirement of their their class, and they were working beyond the forty uh, hour minimum for their internship Work required internship uh-huh. how'd oh, okay. you like that ethan come uh, come uh, mow all the grass in my neighborhood as your required internship is it a Takes, paid internship uh no Re- required free internship <laughs> yep sound, sounds that. problematic to me uh, okay let's move on to article 37 we've probably spent enough time on this but i thought this yeah, was interesting we should wrap we, it up we can't skip article 37 yeah though, let's do it because that one gets to uh, a favorite debate about environmental protections a uh, Article 37 reads, A high level of environmental protection and the improvement of the quality of the environment must be integrated into the policies of the Union and ensured in accordance with the principle of sustainable development. There's a good link right there. I mean, an environmental link because it says must be integrated into the policies of the Union, which is like, if, if that's a link between something economic or environmental mm-hmm. straight to the government, and then once the governments and the economies are tied together, that's... A, that's a key argument right there. Right. So with that, I mean, do you remember all the stuff we found about China under the uh, carbon tax resolution last yeah, year? Yeah, we did. Found I mean, a lot of stuff. We did. I mean, one of the problems with even attempting to regulate the carbon, uh, use a carbon tax in the United States was that the U.S. is not the biggest producer of carbon. So it wouldn't planet. even, like, well, the argument there was that U.S. carbon tax wouldn't do much. Right, right, because really it's China and India are the largest producers of carbon pollution on the planet. So really, uh, this... That would, which would mean this should really be in violation of Article 37 and the EU's views on the principle of sustainable development. So there's at least one good article someone could use for a case in this in this instance, or I, this I think document so. as well. So let's talk about Link really quickly. Okay. So how, if you're writing a case, how are you going to link the economy to any of these human rights and say because of joining the Belt and Road Initiative, these human rights will be harmed? Well, so I'm actually going to probably insist that I'm going to save the economy as my key argument for my second contention there. You're going to have your key argument second. Or I might put this as my second contention. Okay. But in terms of the order we've done the show, we've gone over this first. So okay. um, I would argue that the first val- the highest good of the European Union does in fact need to be uh, valuing human rights. And so that their economic prosperity must be second to affirming human rights. Agreed. And that, in which case, because humans actually matter more than money. Okay. I'm gonna. I might even put it that baldly, even to, and that the the gathering together for economic arrangement is premised on the members of the European Union sharing the commitment to affirming these human rights laid out in this charter. 
And that so because China violates so many of these human rights in ordinary operations, it's not like they have just one, a one-time human rights violation. And none of this is secret. This is all, if we were to do a research specifically on Chinese human rights violations, we'd have so much evidence. Uh, in which case, I'm then going to say, because China is such a human rights violator, the EU should on principle not then, they should not reject their principles in order to gain So it's more of a... Currency. We're not going to join the Belt and Road Initiative because of our principles, not because these human rights for all of the citizens in the EU would be harmed by connecting right. these two economies. Right. Okay. All right. I can see that. Yeah. That, that at least is a good – that's a route of argumentation. I, I think so, yeah. And right. then uh, the, the my second main argument on, on Khan is probably going to focus more on the geopolitical impacts of the Belt and Road rather than, again, on economics. Because economically, the Belt and Road Initiative makes a ton of sense. It is ridiculously expensive to build airports and roads and trains, especially for uh, countries that are that don't already have them. It makes sense if you can pay it back, though. Right, That's the and thing. you and many many countries can. They can afford that. The question then for but for Khan is really okay. So what are the strings that are attached to this, and what is it allowing China to really do? Can they pay it back though? Like even in the long term, because you were giving that example of China would be like. Well, maybe you'll have a famine in these many years and you can't pay back your debts. Just one right. one disaster could change your ability to pay these debts. And you said the interest was like 6% on billions of dollars or something? For, for one, that was one deal. So that, that came from the Center for Global Development paper that I cited earlier. That's a lot of interest. I mean... Well, it is, but you've got to keep in mind that, that you're talking not about an individual person or even a company. You're talking about a country. And you have a... The government is able to raise money for through taxes and through the sale of bonds, and also through borrowing money from other countries. That's that's how. Well, that's true. That's I think I'm going to pull a Roberto Salinas line on you and say that countries don't trade, people trade. So, uh, Doctor yeah. Salinas certainly said that. That that's for the sake of the sovereign debt argument, though. This at least depends on the idea that um, that 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 countries do trade with each other. At least they trade debt with each other. So. Um, but what the uh, what the Center for Global Development did in this paper was uh, these three scholars conducted a study of 68 countries, and they went through and analyzed which of these 68 countries is at risk of having what they called uh, let me get the phrase correct uh, debt whether or not they had debt sustainability problems, and they argued that debt sustainability is a huge is a huge problem uh, because once the once these countries are have unsustainable debt. Well, then they, it's, it's a little bit different. It's really hard for a government to go bankrupt. Uh, and that causes all kinds of other problems. Uh, but they went through, they, had, they argued that 10 European countries are, uh, po- are probably likely to use the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, those European countries are, or those, member, those are in members of the European Union, Bulgaria, Croatia, Estonia, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia, among a whole bunch of 24 European and Eurasian countries that are likely to use this. None of those are. None of those were likely to have problems with debt sustainability. So all of those countries have a high enough GDP that they could manage the debt if they were to take on a loan from the from these Chinese banks. So the economic benefits are legitimate. Like yes. you would you would see these and yes. there's not at least for a good amount of countries there's not a high risk or economic risk in the long run. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, literally, uh, I think the CDG study is a great resource for folks writing this case. Uh, they have a lot of, they go into a lot of detail about really how this has worked and how this could work for a bunch of countries. And looking at, because one of the tricks here is looking at why infrastructure is necessary for economic growth. 
So this could be a great, uh, great pro argument to look at. Take one of these countries that is current, or take uh, some of the poor members of the EU, some of those more central and Eastern European members that suffered from a lack of infrastructure development during the communist years, and because of that, say, okay, well, we don't have enough gross domestic product right now to build airports and railways. But if we had those, what would the economic impact be of companies that can now trade and we can reach markets that currently are unreachable because we simply don't have the infrastructure? How much better would trade within our country be if suddenly a city is connected to six other cities and suddenly businesses can now interact with each other in a way that they couldn't previously? Once you have that sort of infrastructure, the economic growth potential escalates. So, and if countries don't have the capital to create the infrastructure, that's where the Belt and Road Initiative looks like a godsend. Oh, it's great. We can borrow uh, $5 million at a very low interest rate, and we're going to create $50 million of economic impact over the next 10 years. It'll be really easy to pay it back. For some countries, that's going to look great, and I think that's one of the strongest pro-arguments to look at how much economic growth could come out of this from from developing nations. And you said that when I proposed earlier that I was like, wow, this is a great plan. The United States should build their own Belt and Road Initiative. You said that we did, but it's expensive, but not like that kind of Belt and Road Initiative. Right. So I found found two things about that, and I don't know if I can find the specific data in that. Um... But the United States has, we have, uh, under President Trump, we have actually shrunk the amount of international aid that we've offered. And President Trump's policies, you, you remember his whole American First initiative. Yep. Well, his, his, and so really his emphasis is looking to America's interest. That's what he's trying to do, rather than looking at how does America help other countries develop. Because that, that would be giving American money away for other countries' benefit, and that's not what President Trump is all about. So that's not where the American economy is currently going. Uh, but that, that's, it would require a much larger vision to say, ultimately, we're all better off if everyone is connected. And that, that honestly might be an int- that could be an interesting argument on on con to say this would be this is a great idea. China shouldn't be at the head. America should be at the head. Let's do this and put that as a counter plan. If you could do that in yeah. PDF, which and you it's, really it's can. It's almost like saying the Belt and Road Initiative is the spark to begin this whole economic cooperation because it's apparently there's a startup cost. You can't have economic prosperity without infrastructure. So China is filling in that gap so companies can get ahead and grow their economies faster. Uh, that that really is the the, the goal. Um, okay, so let's let's. Uh, I'm trying to think of. Okay, so I want to kind of just run through some different evidence. I'm under the uh, the the Council for Foreign Relations article bit. Um, they argue that. Uh, so I'm just going to read a little bit. Do it. Uh, so this is this whole thing has really been kicked into high gear by President Xi Jinping. He proposed this a few years ago. The CFR reads. Xi's aggressive approach is a shift away from his predecessors, who followed former President Deng's maxim, hide your strength, bide your time. The Council for Foreign Relations' Elizabeth C. Economy writes, Under Xi, China now actively seeks to shape international norms and institutions and forcefully asserts its presence on the global stage. Nayan Chanda, former editor of Far Eastern Economic Review, calls the BRI, quote, an overt expression of China's power ambitions in the 21st century, arguing that Beijing's goal is to remake the global geopolitical balance of powers. Others frame it in less adversarial terms, saying the Chinese leadership simply hopes the BRI will improve China's image among its neighbors and hope to rejuvenate them economically. So 
That's just a rub. I said this yesterday to one of my friends as well. Euphemisms are so scary because they can literally make anything sound good. Like there's one literally right there where you just want to look good to your neighbors, right? But then it's like you really need to empirically analyze these things. So that's just really eye-catching. I like that sentence a lot. I, I think so. The article goes on to uh, use a really great phrase I really like. Um, the uh, BRI money is seen by some as a, quote, potential poison chalice. Oh. BRI projects are built with low interest loans as opposed to aid grants. Some BRI investments have required the use of Chinese firms and their bidding processes have lacked transparency. As a result, contractors have inflated costs leading to canceled projects and political pushback. This uh, just happened in Malaysia where the president of Malaysia canceled $2 billion worth of Belt and Road Initiative projects because, in part, the companies had jacked up their prices because who else are you going to go with? You have to go with us. So there's a lack of competition there. So we'll lend you the money, but you have to use our company, and our company can set their prices at whatever they it's want. Trying to be careful because the other countries will just pull out if they don't want to right? pay that amount of money and raise prices so quickly. Uh, okay. The uh, now the the CFR went on. They did address Europe a little bit here. Uh, can you read the Europe quote there for us at the bottom right here? Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Some European countries are torn between traditional ties to the United States and the economic opportunities that the BRI presents. Several countries in Central and Eastern Europe have accepted BRI financing for their own infrastructure shortfalls. President Emmanuel Macron has urged prudence, suggesting that during a trip to China that the BRI could make partner countries vassal states. That's a cool phrase. Isn't that? Vassal states? Vassal states. I mean, that's, that's feudal language, where yep. the vassal comes when the Lord calls. Oh, man. Wait. That doesn't sound good. No, no, it really doesn't. Really bad. I mean, that yeah. kind of reminds me of World War One, where like all there were so many alliances, and then once one place got in trouble, all the other ones had to go follow, and it was a huge mess. I don't now, not like I'm proposing World War Three is coming up, right? But it, you can see the connection there, where when you're closely connected, and something goes wrong, then then more tends to go wrong. Well, and and really, what what happens when? You have countries that want to have this all this development, and they can see how it's going to benefit them and benefit their citizens if they have more infrastructure, and they can join in trade alliances with all the other countries that are doing all this development. It seems great, and it's not that expensive. And yet, at the end of the day, what happens if China then says, hey, we lent you that money, we need, you, we need a favor? And, and suddenly they owe China, and this happens to a whole bunch of countries around the world. China's power is definitely on the rise. If this, if uh, President Macron is correct, seems like on at the best on the affirmative side, this could be a massive opportunity for economic development, seeing that all the debts can be paid off. But on the negative, it just looks like a big Trojan horse, and the, people could really get into trouble with human rights and everything else once you dig into what the actual implications are. Uh, I think so. Um, so one uh, one other source I was looking at today. Uh, let me sure I get the name right. This is from uh, CQ Researcher. Uh, they've got a they've got a great twelve thousand word report on this very topic on the Belt and Road Initiative. Here's what they have to say: For China, the BRI is paying significant economic dividends. Beijing now controls ten percent of European port capacity, according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, a Paris-based economic research institution. The initiative also has opened new markets for Chinese exports and is giving China access to untapped sources of raw materials. And the program is soaking up some of China's excess industrial capacity that built up during Beijing's massive stimulus, spending following the 07-09 global uh, financial crisis. So, 10%? 10%. 10%. 
already. Oh, yeah. You don't even need the Belt Road Initiative. You already have 10% of Europe's ports. Oh, why stop at 10%? Why not 20? Why not 30? What? Why not? Why shouldn't China have control of 70% of Europe's port well, capacity? Well, I guess all they want is more and more, and they'll never be satisfied. That's Well, we, we, we really should get a, a button on our show to just play the uh, the Hamilton line. Never been satisfied. That yeah. would be, we, we use that one a lot. Okay, are, are there any downsides to uh, to this initiative? That's Whoa. the next bullet point on the on okay. the initiative. I was I was just going to go on to my own thing, but okay. I'll just read okay. it real quick. The initiative, however, holds a dangerous downside for China, as Alan says. Alan Carlson, director of Cornell University's China and Asia Pacific Studies program, with Beijing approving hefty loans to developing nation, developing countries with poor credit ratings and few other sources of capital. Carlson says China's state-run banks could be left holding billions of dollars in bad foreign loans at a time when the nation already is saddled with significant domestic debt. China, for example, has lost $20 billion of the $62.2 billion it lent to Venezuela, according to the American Enterprise Institute. They said, that's the kind of situation that definitely adds to system-wide financial crisis in China, says Johan Van de Ven, a China analyst at the RWR Advisory Group, a Washington-based business consultancy that specializes in political risk. So... I mean, and look, I, my, the biggest thing that caught my eye was the example with Malaysia, where Malaysia just absolutely said no after the companies raised their prices. You would think that China wouldn't make such an amateur mistake. Like, and not even amateur, but like, look, now you have all this money, let's just jack up prices. It shows that countries are willing to, to go against China when something like that happens. Well, so I thought it was really interesting. Which suggests to me that China's, China's uh, goal is not truly economic. Yeah. Because if China's goal was economic, they would not lend out money in this at this uh, in these amounts to bad risks. Or maybe it's really they think it's really long term economic, but then and then they try to raise the prices, and then it just doesn't work out for them. So could they be. could be because you said they think generation generationally. So mm-hmm. maybe it's a very very massive plan, or they just haven't strategized correctly. Could be. Uh, the the uh, I want to read one more bit from uh, from this report, and then we probably uh, we should. Probably start wrapping this up, I suspect. I agree. So, so um, the uh, CQ researcher report goes on to uh, talk about U.S. officials being worried about the BRI's strategic dimensions. Uh, they warn that the, quote, seaports China is building throughout the Indo-Pacific region could accommodate China's growing navy. <laughs> so China has not been a major military threat in part because they have not had a major navy. They can't get their millions of soldiers around the world. That's changing. Especially if now, so now add in the potential harm of a uh, Chinese military that can be transported easily around the world through these, this Chinese infrastructure that's able to move really anywhere around the world. Africa, Latin, Latin America, uh, Asia, South, uh, Eurasia, into Europe. I smell an impact. Ah, big one. Okay. Uh, the report goes on. Quote, Xi's ultimate aim, they say, is for China to supplant the United States as the principal economic and military power across huge stretches of the goal. I'm sorry, huge stretches of the globe. That's clearly the goal. Pushing the U.S. and Western influence back to the margins while China exerts its own power over the vast region that is covered by the Belt and Road. Uh, uh, one scholar named Roland says... Uh, now, the Belt and Road is also accomplishing huge things that are really beneficial. So I don't want to go all in on harms. Let's also talk about benefits and impacts. Uh, so the, uh, okay, the Johns Hopkins did a study finding that most of the uh, nearly $100 billion that China lent to African nations between 2000 and 2015 financed projects to address the continent's yawning infrastructure gap. Quote, 
On a continent where over 600 million Africans have no access to electricity, 40% of the Chinese loans paid for power generation and transmission. Another 30% went to modernizing Africa's crumbling transport infrastructure. So a lot of the harms here are potential. They're strategizing, there are suspicions about China's real motivation. A lot of the impacts that are really happening are incredibly positive for building infrastructure around the world. And this, this facilitates global trade as well, because it's not like China just locks these people in and then trades with them. Because, the, of course, the upfront loan is in Chinese currency, so that part is like a short-term partnership with just China. But once these countries are enabled, they could trade with whoever they want, unless some kind of major tie blocks that from the Belt and Road Initiative, which I don't think that it would. But it's sort of enabling countries, and then China would just make all the more money off of it. Well, okay, let's, let's see if we can kind of summarize everything we've been saying into some pro-strategy suggestions and some con-strategies and then some big issues. What do you see going on for pro? How can pro set up their arguments, Ethan? Cheap loans and construction costs is the general idea here. So it's all about economic benefits and impacts, and how can we see more wealth being created for those countries that don't have it right now? I would definitely throw in that part about how the EU could really use this right now because they're sort of not on a massive decline, but they're on a lower point, I guess you could say. So this economic boost could be exactly what they need, and it could help keep the EU as uniform as they would like to be with some countries joining it with and some other countries not joining it. It would just be uniformity and everybody would be under the Belt and Road Initiative and the entire EU would join it together. So that's another, it's, again, that's still an economic, economic argument, but there's plenty of examples you can dig for for the economy to be good on pro. And expansion into Asian markets is another thing, just still, help, still helping facilitate global trade with all the sources that we had as well talking about earlier. And I think that's what I would cover on affirmative. You yeah. ready to move to negative? Uh, with with the one addition on on AF that it may be worth prepping a card just to point out that uh, this paper from the Center for Global Development, uh, their analysis found that EU countries are able to handle the debt without any really fear of of debt sustainability problems. They can handle the debt. Uh, they're, they're wealthy enough that they'll be able to make their payments on time. So really, that solves a lot of the problems that, that poor countries have here. So the EU made, so Pro could look at that and say, okay, even if China is doing this to take advantage of developing countries so they can repossess the infrastructure that they built, uh, that's, not a, that's not really a threat to us. We can afford our payments, we'll make them on time, and we'll use the money to multiply our economy. Um, on con... Um, you may disagree with this. I don't know, uh, but I, I think, usually disagree near the end you, of the episode. You do. On yeah, that's true. I, I think I, I think there's a really strong argument to be made that China's human rights violation forms such a contradiction that the EU harms its own sense of uh, of identity by partnering with China in this way. Even if it is just to the effect of we're going to take in the Chinese money and we're going to use use Chinese firms to build these projects. And we're going to use it to our advantage. I think that's going to bring China so much into the European Union orbit of things that it's going to cause a crisis of identity for the EU. I think I, I would agree with you. I, as I see long that as, as it can't be the primary argument, but it's definitely something that should be included in the neg case. I, the I, con okay. case. Well, yeah. that's, that's good. I'm glad we agree on that. Um, there is one other. I want to get this out. Uh, where was that evidence? Uh, so the CGD paper does give some interesting examples of uh, what happens when people fail to make their payments to China. And I wanted to make sure we go over a couple of those. Uh, oh, here we are. Okay. So 
this is on page 20 of that report. So I think that one good argument on Khan would be to look at China's record with debt sustainability. So best case scenario, you're pretty sure you can make your payments, you take out a big loan, things change. Well, you want to know what happens if your bank is going to foreclose on your loan. And are they going to take your house? Are they going to repossess your truck? The same is true with countries. Uh, the, this study found really three, three examples that you can look to. Uh, the first one is in 2011, where China reportedly agreed to write off an unknown amount of debt owed by Tajikistan in exchange for some 1,158 square kilometers of disputed territory. So China took Tajikistan's land in payment of their debt. Okay, there's that. Uh, in 2011, in a, in a deal with Cuba, when Cuba was in a desperate economic situation seeking debt relief, China, its largest single creditor, agreed to restructure between four to six billion dollars of the debt. The details of the transaction were not disclosed. So, in this case, China is dealing with another communist power, and so it cut a really good deal. They restructured the debt, didn't take anything from Cuba, just kind of moved stuff around a bit. Lastly, in uh, July of 2017, uh, China figured out how to deal with Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka was unwilling to service an $8 billion loan at 6% interest. Uh, that loan was used to finance the construction of the Hamban Toda port, while China agreed to a debt-for-equity swap accompanied by a 99-year lease for managing the port. Oh, man. So the, just complete control for 99 yeah. years? Yeah. Wow. Also, so partial Sri ownership. Doesn't even, that, yeah. <laughs> so you can't even use the port that you just built to the full extent that you'd like to because China's just going to be occupying it the entire time. So not good things happen when you can't pay so back your loans. I, I think that, that indicates – I think that gives some evidence supporting what we've been saying. But you said that most countries are able to pay back the loans. If things go according to plan. And things – you can't predict the future. So that's things don't one always of your go favorite according to things plan. to say is you can't predict uh, the future. If I were need, desperately in need of money, um, I would still try the, to my greatest ability to go to borrow money from friends – from families, and from institutions that are ethically responsible to treat me as a human being, I would not go to a neighborhood loan shark. I would not go to the mafia to borrow money because it is entirely possible that he would send a bruiser to collect my debt and break my legs if I fall behind on my payments. And he has no restraints on what kind of terms he can set on that loan. That's part of why, even though there, there's a whole underground economy that some people are part of, you are still better off going with the official above-ground economy because left outside of supervision, people tend to default to the worst possible state. Countries are the same. This is part of why the, uh, the, the Center for Global Development, one of their big suggestions is not that the BRI is a bad idea. They think it's a great idea. But their big suggestion is that it needs to be made a multilateral arrangement, get a lot of countries in on funding this thing, and also the arrangements just need to be transparent. People, for some reason, I think this is true of people and countries, people don't like dirty deeds to be done in daylight. They're quite happy to do sneaky, evil, rotten things as long as other people don't know about it. But if you expose those things to public awareness, suddenly people are only willing to do a certain level of bad, of bad things. Mm. They'll still do some sneaky things, but not nearly as bad if no one ever knows about it. <laughs> so... Okay, uh, the last thing that I really think is happening here on Khan uh, is that Khan needs to make the argument that the EU joining the Belt and Road Initiative partners with China, even if it's just in repayment of funds, 
in a way that enables China to create a global trade network propelling China to a new position in geopolitics, such that essentially this hands a this hands China the reins of the global world of the new world order. Yeah, so it's it's almost like who's going to lead the new world order because you got the West and China, but it's not just the West and China anymore. Now China's spreading across, and you've got this massive initiative that could end up taking the entire European Union with it. So that's a big scare on Neg for sure. Right, and I think I mean I think that's part of why uh, the the United States is not really in play here. Yeah, but the 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 big question I think there's two big questions at stake here in this resolution. On the one hand, as we've already hit a lot, it's, okay, which is more important, economics or human rights? But also, it's the question of leadership. And the EU, it's where the United States still represents the West in terms of being the leader of the free world is still one of the titles that our president gets called. Uh, no matter who's in that office, the, the office of the president is seen as the leader of the free world since Ronald Reagan. Well, is it going to be the traditional West that has this inheritance of human rights and freedom and government that is ruled by the people and so on? Or is it going to be communist China with their kind of hybrid state-managed capitalism that's really communism under a new name uh, that really has no tradition of human rights? Which is it going to be? And that's, 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 that's what I question. see at stake here. Yep, I completely agree. All right, any, any final thoughts before we sign off? I, I think one thing to note about this resolution is that it just got more interesting the more you dig into it. Because when I first saw it, I know when you first saw it, we were, it was not so appealing. Uh, uh, it just sounded very policy-ish, I guess you could say. But, I mean, there's so many different factors at play that it, it seemed really cool once we actually got into it with all, the entire human rights packet and the, the article that you found and the big study that you found as well. So I think it's a good resolution, and the more you dig into it, the more you'll have fun with it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we hope this has been a helpful episode to you. Uh, then, Thank you for tuning in to this episode of What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. You've been listening to a, uh, an hour-long discussion of the September-October public forum resolution, and uh, we'd love to hear from you about whether or not any of our advice was worthwhile, or if you found better tips, better sources, please let us know. Ethan, how can people get in touch with us? If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so at whatstheres at gmail.com. That's W-H- a-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. Check out our website. That's www.whatstheres.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at whatstheres underscore. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth. <laughs>